welcome to episode 35 of the Help Side Basketball Coaching Strategy and Analytics Podcast. I'm your host, John Jansen, and college basketball season is officially over. I wanted to wait to make a podcast till after the NCAA tournament was over so I could kind of talk about everything that was interesting in the tournament. In today's episode, we are going to jump around the NBA for a minute with the playoffs starting tonight, the play-in starting tonight. We'll talk about the NCAA tournament and UConn and all of the storylines within that tournament. In the analytics section, we're going to talk about never taking a bad shot, and that was something that Jeff Van Gundy t- talked about in at a Sloan Analytics conference. And in the strategy session, we are going to talk about time and score importance in a game. So let's get right into it. And the first thing I want to do is talk about the NBA. The playoffs are here. It's a very exciting couple months here. And, of course, I have to start with the Lakers. Kind of making this run here at the end of the season to go from out of the playoffs into the seven seed. I was really hoping they would get the six seed. It was very interesting because they were on this winning streak. And when they were winning, I was worried they would might sneak into the five seed. And the reason why the five seed is bad is because you play the Suns in the four seed. And you go, well, the Suns are the four seed. Who cares? Yeah, it's because they lost a million games while Kevin Durant was hurt. They traded all of their players for Kevin Durant, and then Kevin Durant immediately got hurt. And so they lost a bunch of games. And now that Kevin Durant's back, they're I think they're undefeated with him. So I was hoping for the Lakers' sake they could avoid the Suns, which they did. I was, of course, hoping to get the six seed which would have been Sacramento, a team that hasn't been in the playoffs in forever. So it would have been a good situation for a veteran team to take on a team that hasn't been there before. Instead, they got the seven seed. They have to play Minnesota tonight. I'm hoping they'll beat beat them. No Rudy Gobert. I actually don't know if that makes the, the Wolves worse or better, but the Wolves could be in a little bit of disarray, and it would be great if the Lakers got an easy win tonight and then they could rest until, I'm guessing, Saturday or Sunday when their first-round series starts. Can the Lakers win the West? I think it's going to be difficult. I Like I said, I wish they had the sixth seed, but I guess it doesn't really matter because they were going to have to beat Memphis in one round or another. And it's very possible the Warriors could uh, win that other series, and it could be Lakers-Warriors, and the Lakers beat the Warriors three out of four times this year. So I think against either of those teams in the second round, the Lakers would have a great shot. But again, they have to get through a Memphis team that is finally getting healthy and kind of starting to roll again. So we'll have to see how that goes. A couple other things from the West. You know, Kyrie goes to Dallas. They're terrible. They seem to tank the last couple games. They can keep this draft pick. It's so interesting when you have a player like Kyrie Irving who's so talented but is such a problem because he gets coaches fired, and there's just no other way to describe it. I mean, the best thing for Jason Kidd's career is if Kyrie leaves in the in the summer, because, I mean, how many coaches has Kyrie gotten fired? How many times has he just jumped shipped or said, I don't want to do this or I don't want to do that? And, you know, and it reminds me of Baker Mayfield, or like any kind of top pick, especially in football, like a, a top quarterback pick, because... They the team the franchise invests so much money in that player that if they don't win, they're gonna get rid of the coach before they get rid of the player. And so they'll just cycle through all these coaches hoping that one of them will find this magic recipe to make this top draft pick 
work. And what happens is you find out later it was the player. It was never the coaches. And all these coaches have gotten fired. And now you've, you know, screwed up your whole franchise trying to, you know, manipulate it to make your best player really good. And then you find out later that he's just not that good. And now, you know, you fired all these coaches. And and the same can be said for Kyrie. And I'm sure there's countless other top picks that this has been the situation for. And if he leaves... I mean, wouldn't Dallas just go back to being good again? I know they traded some of their players for him, but it seemed like as soon as they got as he got there. So the thing is, when you when you have these superstars, you need guys who are going to do the dirty work. And you know, sometimes guys like LeBron, Kyrie, all these all these superstars, they take possessions off because they need to save their energy for offense, and and you know, the entire defense is centered around stopping them, and so for them to be good. Sometimes they need these possessions off. Well, you have Luka doing that. You have Kyrie doing that. And I feel like Dallas traded all of those guys, all those all those hustle guys in order to get Kyrie. And now they're gone and they don't have those guys anymore. And, and that's why they've struggled. If I have to make a pick for the West, I mean, it is so wide open. I really think Denver, Memphis, Golden State, Lakers, Phoenix can all win. So that's five of the eight teams I think can win the West. If I had to pick, I would take the Suns just because I think they're the most loaded team. And with Kevin Durant, I mean, they just have a dynamic that teams like Denver and Minnesota, I mean, Memphis just don't have with that just absolute bona fide superstar. And you're going to say, okay, Jokic and and John Morant. It's like, okay, but they also have Devin Booker and they also have Chris Paul. So in, in, in addition to this one superstar, they have like two other you know, a second superstar and a third really good player. And then they have some really good role players too. And DeAndre Ayton, you can't forget about him. I mean, he's really solid as well. So they're just so deep. And I just think they have to be the team to beat. Moving to the East. I mean, sitting in my mind is that game where Boston went to Milwaukee and just destroyed them and were up by like 50 at one point and ended up winning by 40. And it's just like, it's so weird because with Giannis... And the size and length of Milwaukee, you just think they would overwhelm all of these guards for Boston. And Boston just owns them. It's just crazy to me how Boston is able to overcome their lack of size. And I know they're not small, but still, I mean, they're a guard-oriented team. And Milwaukee is just long all over the board. And they're just able to just beat them in their own gym all the time with a new coach. I mean, it's like, it's it's very impressive with Boston and I know they're the two seed, but just like last year, I don't know why, but I think they have Milwaukee's number. Now, if somehow Boston gets knocked out before the Eastern Conference Finals, then I would take Milwaukee because I think Milwaukee can beat everybody else. But if it comes down to Milwaukee and Boston in that series, I would definitely take um, Boston. For the NBA champion, I think I'm going to have to pick Boston this year. I hate to do it because I just, I don't know. It's so weird. I, I just don't, I watch them play and I'm just not impressed. Maybe it's because of their size. But the reason to pick Boston is because the West is so wide open. It could be anybody. So I'm going to stick with a safe pick and I'm going to take Boston to win the whole thing. Moving to the NCAA tournament. It was a very interesting tournament, of course. Everyone's brackets got screwed up. I mean, most most 
bracket brackets were done before you even got to the final four. I had one buddy who actually is a huge Kansas fan and he picked UConn. So that was very impressive because they were in the same, not only in the same quadrant of the bracket, but they were in the same top of the same, it was a one and four in the same area. So they had to play each other right away. And he still took them to beat his team, which was the defending champ. So that was very impressive. So there's a bunch of storylines that I want to cover real quick. First of all, people love upsets. I mean, everybody loves to see these upsets. The problem with these upsets is that you get this year. You get a Final Four that you really don't care about. You get San Diego State, Florida Atlantic, Miami, and UConn, a team that most people have never seen play this year, not one time before the tournament. And when that happens, the interest is way down. I mean, I, I'll i be honest, I didn't care as much because you want the Titans clashing. You want Kansas playing Duke. You want Kentucky playing UCLA or Gonzaga or something like that. You want these big teams playing each other, but you also want upsets. And when you get these upsets, it usually doesn't go this far. But for, you know, there were so many upsets this year that it kind of ruined the excitement of the tournament. The championship game was never really in doubt. You know, the UConn, UConn was just cruising and it made for a non-dramatic tournament and it wasn't quite as fun. And and not only do we like knowing the teams, we like knowing the coaches, we like knowing the players. And even though some of them are freshmen, they're such nationally known names that that we kind of already get to know them throughout the season. So every time you're rooting for upsets, you want the upsets to be like one game, maybe two, and then you want the big boys to kind of take retake control and make it to the final four. So I want to go over the number one seeds. Alabama, you know, they had the whole thing with Miller, and they just never seemed like the same team after that. And he didn't seem like the same guy. I mean, he was so bad in their tournament games. And that's, to me, what ultimately cost them a chance to win the whole thing was all of that that it seemed like they ignored, but, you know... It clearly was an issue because they went from unbeatable to losing to a San Diego State team that shouldn't even be able to be on the same court with them. Then you look at Houston. They get the injury, and they just run into a hot Miami team. And that happens sometimes. And, and you know, Houston's team was based on physicality and overpowering their opponents. And when you play a team that's just as big as you, and just and almost as physical, but that can also shoot the ball a little bit better than you, you can have these kind of one-offs. And that's how the tournament works. A one-off can do it for you. Purdue, I will just never understand. You know, this wasn't something there's there's it wasn't the first time Purdue saw a team that had small guards or guys who can shoot threes or something like that. And I just don't I I, I don't understand it. I really don't, because I think if they played that team 100 times. I think they beat them 95 times. I really do. I think they just started to let the game tighten them up. And when that happens, anything can happen, you know, because they're not playing free. They're not playing loose. And they know the pressure of only one team ever being a 16 and losing before. And that can get to you. And it clearly did. I think the Kansas situation, I'm going to get, I'm going to get to that at the end. But once again, I mean, Arkansas is a good team, but they 
they're not better than Kansas. And it was just a situation where the game's hard to slip away. It's hard to slip away. And it's like Kansas, again, they just kind of, they almost got, not scared, but they started playing tentatively. And Arkansas played free. Arkansas has done this before. And so it's like they were used to being the underdog. And they got them. And before I move on from that, I love Eric Musselman. I think he's a really good coach. But to me, he kind of blew his load after they beat Kansas, pulling his shirt off and getting carried off the court. It's a great win, but you're here to win a tournament. You're not here to win one game. And I feel like when you celebrate like that, your players almost relax or they or they allow the moment to overtake them and, and, and let it last for too long because it was such a big moment. And then they go into the locker room of San Diego State, and San Diego State beats Alabama, and the coach goes, that's a good win, but we're not done. We're here to win six. And the guys are like, yeah, we are. And they were like, there was no celebration because they just won a game. And, you know, like, I understand that beating a number one seed is great, but you're here to win six, not one. And I think that Bet, if he could redo it, I think he would probably mute his celebration a little bit and keep his players focused for the next weekend. Next thing I want to talk about is Gonzaga and UCLA. You know, this was the big rematch, and I thought UCLA was a really good team this year, and I thought they had a chance to make the Final Four. And everyone says that their depth hurt them and they got tired. I completely disagree with that. I thought UCLA was running up and down the floor and killing Gonzaga. Gonzaga's defense was awful, and Gonzaga couldn't keep up with them. Every time they... they they ran the floor, they scored, they got easy buckets, and they built up that 14-point lead. And then it's like the coach called timeout and said, hey, let's start working this clock. And then they got into this half-court game, and they couldn't score. And they couldn't score. And then, of course, Gonzaga gets the momentum, but they they it's almost like they changed strategies with like 10 or 12 minutes to go because they started going, okay, now let's try and win this instead of just continuing what was working. And it was really disappointing because, as you saw, Gonzaga gets destroyed by UConn. And again, it took everything for Gonzaga to win that game. And I didn't think UCLA was as gassed. And then Gonzaga just had nothing left against UConn, and it was just over immediately. So I just really feel like if you're ahead in a game and and what is winning... Just continue to do that, you know, because when you switch a strategy up, now the other team, that maybe that played to their strength, you know, because Gonzaga was struggling getting back on defense and UCLA was getting so many open, easy baskets. And then all of a sudden, when they walked the ball up the floor, Gonzaga set up their half-court defense and was able to get the stops they needed. And then they were able to go on the break and, and get some easy stuff going the other direction. So that was a little disappointing. I would have loved to see UCLA against UConn. And the way it ended up working out, I mean, if UCLA can somehow beat UConn, it, it would have opened right up for them to win the whole thing, which is a little disappointing. The last two things I want to talk about, well, let's first talk about the championship game and the championship teams. And I think I watched just about every San Diego State game in the tournament because they were just on, you know, I, I tried to see the all the games and as they go further, they get, you know, more attention they really struggled to score the ball. And they just were very physical, great defensively, 
And then they just tried to figure it out on offense with a bunch of mid-range shots and hitting an occasional three. And basically what they did was they just hit timely shots. And easily in any of their games, if they don't make these timely shots, they lose and they're out. And when you go through and you go, okay, they're in the championship game against UConn, and you go, okay, can they win this game? And you, and you think, okay, sure, because their defense is great. But I thought it was going to be a blowout. I, I, I really was not surprised by the championship game score at all. If you look back, they beat a 12 in the first round. Then they beat a 13 because Furman beats Virginia. Then they beat Alabama, which is a fantastic win. Fantastic. But Alabama had like a 12-point lead on them and just like fell apart. Then they beat Creighton, who was a good team. But Creighton beat NC State, Baylor, who I think is really overrated, and Princeton. Not, not amazing. And then they beat FAU. So they beat a 12, a 13, a 1, a 6, and a 9. So they only had to play one team that was ranked ahead of them until they played UConn. And so it was kind of a little bit like they had overshot. You know, they had done so great that at some point, and it's just the same thing I always talk about. You know, like you, everyone wants to see upsets, but then all of a sudden you have a team that's not good enough and they go and they just get destroyed. And that's basically what happened in the championship game. And, and it, it happened last year with the 15 seed, and I can't remember what their what their name was. And they ended up playing North Carolina in the Elite Eight, and North Carolina beat them by like 40. And you're like, oh, this is such a waste of a potentially, you know, once you get to the Elite Eight, to the Final Four, you want to see great games. And then you have this waste of a game because a team wins by 40 because they shouldn't have been there. And it's the same thing, you know, except, except San Diego State made it to the championship game, and then that game was a, a waste because... They just weren't quite good enough to be there. UConn, same, you know, I'm very impressed with them. They took care of business. They beat good teams. Of course, things broke their way. They didn't have to play Kansas. You know, they didn't have to play UCLA, and they played a tired Gonzaga team, but they handled everybody. And that's the thing. They never were in it. It's not like they, you know, San Diego State wins by one. San Diego State wins by three. San Diego State wins by seven. You know, like, UConn took these teams that weren't as good as them and handled them and said, we're better than them. And so you can say, okay, they didn't play the hardest competition, but they blew out just about everybody. And so it's not their fault that Kansas lost to Arkansas, but it wasn't like it was a two-point game against Arkansas and they barely squeaked through. They beat them by 23, okay? It's 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 not, you know, they didn't get UCLA, they, got, they beat Gonzaga by 30, you know? So... They took care of whoever they had. So you wouldn't say, oh man, if they had played a better team, they probably would have lost. But since they won by 15, you could say, well, no, that's not true. you know. And they were just probably, when it got down to it, the most complete team. They were an excellent defensive team. They had the length with the big guy. They had shooting. I mean, one of their guards, I can't even remember his last name. I mean, this guy was just barely even squaring up and just knocking down three. So it was very impressive across the board. And they definitely deserved it. Now, the last thing I want to talk about with this is the refereeing. And I am probably say this every year, but I'm going to say it again. The refereeing in this tournament is horrendous. And I think college referees are really good. I think they're probably better than NBA refs because NBA refs are part of the entertainment. But when you get into these tournaments or you get on these CBS games, these high-profile games, I'm telling you right now, these refs 
are trying to keep the games close. And I have no idea if they're instructed to do that by the NCAA, by the people who run CBS and TNT and Turner and all that stuff. But I'm telling you, you get down by 10 with three or four minutes to go, you will get every single call. They will give the team behind every single opportunity to come back and win this game, to win the game. And I hate it. I think it is, I think it ruins the tournament. I think it ruins the games because a team has beat you or a team has been beaten for 37 of the 40 minutes and then the refs give them three or four calls and now you have to beat them again because the refs are going to get it down to four points, okay? Now look, the refs are not going to hand them the whole game, but they're going to get it down to four points. They're going to get it down to three points. They're going to get it down to five points with about two minutes to go. Why? Because that's the drama. That's the excitement. So what happens is you're down 10, you're down 12, and you start giving the team that's behind every single call. And that team comes all the way back, and it's very exciting, and everyone's calling timeouts. And you can see the players. They're just putting their hands in the air like, I didn't even touch them. You can see the, the coaches like laugh because they actually probably know that this is happening. And so this game gets down to five points or four points, and now your players have to win it again. And to me, it's it it ruins it. And sometimes they don't, and that's what happens. And I'm going to look directly at the Kansas-Arkansas game where Kansas was ahead and every single call goes Arkansas's way. And then Arkansas hits a big shot here or there and Kansas misses a shot here and there. And just like that, they lose. And gosh, there were some other ones. I mean, the Alabama-San Diego State game. I mean, there's so many. Oh, the... Princeton, Arizona game. I mean, I'm just sitting here texting my friends when one of these teams is down 10 and go, just watch. Here they come. Oh, the UCLA-Gonzaga game. And look, I'm rooting for UCLA. They're local. And I'm telling you, UCLA was down, was down 10 with like four minutes to go. And they took the lead by one because they got every... I mean, they got like three consecutive and ones. And just like that, they're right there. I mean, these guys were not even touched. They showed this replay and no one is even touched and they're calling and ones. I mean, it's so ridiculous and it ruins the game. And like, I wanted UCLA to win, but when Gonzaga's up 10 with four minutes to go, they deserve to win the game. And then the ref goes foul, foul, foul. And here comes UCLA. And all of a sudden now you're down to, like I said, that little four point game. Gonzaga misses, UCLA scores. Gonzaga misses, UCLA scores. And they're up by one or whatever. And... It's And then now Gonzaga has to hit, hit another miracle three-pointer to win the game. And it's just like, I understand they want drama. I understand they want ratings. But, man, these are these are people that have worked their whole season, their whole lives for this. And to, to, to jeopardize that to, for ratings to me is like the worst thing you can possibly do. But it's not going to change because money and ratings are the most important thing. So... That's my two cents on it. I'm sure that no one would ever say that's true, but I believe that that is the case. Moving to the analytics section, I want to talk about something Jeff Van Gundy said on a, at the Sloan Analytics Conference a few years ago when he was talking about two-for-ones. And I've talked about this a long time ago on this podcast where he was saying, well, what's the point of a two-for-one? Then why not do a three-for-two and a four-for-three and, and, and so on and so forth? And he believes that teams will take a bad shot in order to get the two for one. And that's a completely different conversation. But what I want to talk about is what he said is, he said, I don't believe there's any moment in the game 
where a team should be okay with taking a bad shot. And on the surface, you go, well, yeah, of course not. But then you think about, well, what about at the end of the game when you're down 30 and you put your guys in who never play? Is it okay then? Because never means never. What about these two-for-one situations? What about at the end of a game when you're down one or tied and your superstar player just dribbles around for 20 seconds and then shoots it with two guys on him because he's the best player? And you can even look at the NBA where... You know, LeBron was destroyed, was killed in the media for passing the ball when he was double teamed. And they said, well, you should shoot it. Well, the thing is, if he had shot it and he had missed it, everyone said, well, you should have passed it. You were double teamed. So the concept of never taking a bad shot, I kind of wanted to go into that. And I am such a huge proponent of this. And I don't know if it's from me listening to Jeff Van Gundy say it years ago when it, when it first came out. But if you think about it, a basketball team is such a fragile entity. Every single person is their own thinking, breathing person with their own agenda. And so what happens is each of these people, each of these 10, 12, 15 people who have their own agendas match up their agendas together in order to form a team, right? Everyone's agenda is to win a national championship, to win an NBA championship, but when you go, okay, well, what about, that's your team goal. What, what's your personal goal? And a, and a player might say, I want to be all conference. Well, that's, that's a great goal. I want to lead the team in rebounds. Okay, that's a great goal. I want to lead the team in assists. Oh, that's another great goal. But now we're not thinking about the team. We're thinking about ourselves. And now we're thinking about our individual goals instead of the team goals. And so now you think about, okay, I want to make all conference. Well, if you're going to make all conference, you have to be one of the best six players, or or if you have first and second team, maybe one of the best 10 to 12 players in your entire conference. Okay. Well, how are you going to do that? Well, usually all conference play is not only your performance, but it's your statistics. So if this player who says, I want to win a national championship, but on a personal level, I also, I also want to be all conference. Well, what kind of, is he going to take bad shots? Is, is he going to take those extra couple shots in order to try to achieve his personal goal? And what if he finds out early on in the season that winning a national championship is not realistic? What if winning a league championship is not realistic? Well, now he goes, okay, well, all of our team goals are impossible. So I guess I'm just now down to my personal goals. And now my personal goal is to be all conference or to lead the team in this statistic or this or that. So now you get these dynamics where people have reasons to make decisions that are not best for the team. And it's very, very hard because most shots taken by a team, that player believes that they're helping the team because every single player on the team is very good and you've entrusted them to be on the floor and take shots. So every time they shoot, they believe that they're actually helping the team because they believe that they can make it. There's very few people who shoot just to shoot. They believe that they're helping the team win while also, you know, a side effect is they their statistics are better. So bad shots happen I don't think there's any games where teams go, we didn't take one bad shot the whole game. There's always bad shots. But when Van Gundy says you should never take one, it's because of its impact on the rest of the team. 
So if player A, who's the best player, takes a bad shot and player B was open, well, now next time player B touches the ball, he's going to shoot it because he's upset that he didn't get that open look that he should have had. He feels that he's owed a shot. Now, when player B takes a shot and player A is the leading scorer and now he's not getting the ball as much, well, he's like, okay, well, now I got to do my thing because I got averages to keep up. I want to be all conference. I want this. I want that. And now we're taking more bad shots. So every time one bad shot is taken, it has an effect throughout the team. And so let's even look at when subs come in because I think this is even more dangerous for the dynamic of the team because subs don't get to play a lot. And if you're a sub and you come in and you don't do anything, you don't score. Well, the coach might say, well, we, you know, well, he's not scoring today. We need to try somebody else. Or he is scoring today, so let's go back to him. So think about those dynamics. You're at halftime. You've played everybody in your rotation. And you look down the box score and you say, little Jimmy's got six points in the first half. That's pretty good. We only have 30 points. He's got six of them. Well, we got to play him more in the second half. Well, if his six points are going to lead you to play him more in the second half, then everybody else is going to learn that they need to score more points to get more minutes. And Jimmy is going to go, well, I had six points in the first half, and he play, I got to play more, so that's the key to me playing more. So when, you, when they're actually playing, these players are incentivized to take bad shots because if they go in, they might get more minutes. So, so I believe that in order to have run a successful team, every single bad shot, must be talked about and said, we can't have that. And it's interesting because from going to be a head coach to now being an assistant coach, that to me is something that was always very important to me. And I don't feel like I'm in a position now to stop practice and say that. Whereas when I was the head coach, I would do it every single time. And I try to kind of say it near the head coach and sometimes he'll say, get in there and tell him. And sometimes he'll stop it and say it. But it's so contagious. And that's what Van Gundy's talking about. Because when one guy shoots one, and then the next guy shoots one, and then the next guy shoots, and the next, everyone's like, F this. I need, I need, I get, if this guy's going to do it, then why don't, why don't I? And now that we're in the off season, we're, I'm watching a lot of pickup ball with recruits and with our players. And I see so many bad shots every single day in practice. And again, I'm an assistant coach. I don't know if coach wants everyone in there going, hey, bad shot, hey, bad shot, because they're all bad shots. I mean, these guys are just shooting nothing but contested threes and pick up every game. And I hate it, but it's not my place, I don't believe, to say anything about it. So what's the solution? I believe the solution is talking to the players every single time about bad shots. I try to talk about, you know, we've talked about it before, your shooting percentages with the ball. I mean, uh, excuse me. Your shooting percentage is wide open versus guarded. And if you're shooting 75% when you're wide open and 10 or 15% when you're guarded, that's going to end up being your 40% or your 43% or your 38% or whatever it is. The problem is that the players believe that even if they're guarded, there's no difference. That's number one. Number two, they also believe that they can make the shot. That's why they're taking it, even though they're guarded. And, and number three, and what's also, the scary part is if they do make it, now they're having the, a big game and now they're going to play more 
because of course they're going to make the open ones. But if you can add in those days when you're hitting the contested ones, now you're hot and now coach is going to leave you in because today could be your day. And it's a very dangerous game. And I think it's something that needs to be nipped in the bud every single time it happens. And the counter to that is being unselfish is also contagious. And so if you're unselfish and unselfish and unselfish and unselfish, you're going to get so many more open shots. And then the players are going to understand what these open shots are and, and what these great shots are. And then it's going to be contagious. And then you got something. And that's the goal is to get these guys that are almost like overpassing. I mean, I can't tell you when I was a head coach how many times a guy would overpass and somebody would yell, oh, you should have shot that. And I go, no way. I want overpassing. If we're going to overpass, that's great because they'll get it because that means they're getting it. Going along with that in the strategy session, time and score importance, it's 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 hand in hand. That's why I want to talk about both of them on the same day. And I started thinking about this because I was watching this open gym and it had four of our players on the team and the other team had one X player and one of our players. And then all the rest were like recruits or whatever. And the team that had four players from our team had two of our big guys. And these guys both are great, really good players and they play really hard. And then they had our best player on our team. So they had our two big guys, the best player on our team, and then they had our, our backup point guard, I guess. Okay? So this team should win every game. And the other team had a bunch of a couple recruits and this ex-player who brought his little brother and then one of our players. So the game starts, and the guy who's the sixth man takes the first three. Contested, doesn't go in. Now, he loves to shoot, and that's fine. It's not a good shot, whatever, it's 0-0. Zero, zero. Other team goes down and scores. They come down, they turn the ball over. Other team comes down and scores. They come down. I don't remember what happened. Other team comes down and scores, and they are just cheering and and so happy because they see they're playing against three of our best players plus one of our role players. And they have one guy from our team on their team and they're up three, nothing. And this right here on this possession, they came down, they made one or two passes and the role player guy took another contested three. And this to me is all of this, all of what's wrong rolled up into one. You have the two biggest players in the gym on the same team. Every now, now let me tell you something. We play this open gym. Everything's worth one. So a three it means nothing. So you have the two biggest players on the floor. You have our best player who was first team all conference, and you have this guy, and this guy's taking a contested three down three nothing. I mean it. It was such a bad shot, and it wasn't like the shot was terrible. With time and score, it was a horrific shot, right? Like, right? Like he wasn't like so guarded; it was such a terrible shot. But he was contested, and you have three players on the team that are better than you, that are bigger than the other team, and that are—it's the same value for shooting a, for making a layup versus a three. It makes zero sense for for him to shoot that three. But going back to the other part. He is a sixth man, seventh man, who wants to prove that he should be a starter or he should be playing more. And he's going to take volume shots. 
and it's open gym. He goes, well, I don't care. It's open gym. I want to get my shots up. That's not how it works. The only thing that's important is winning the game. That's the only thing that matters. And things like statistics have ruined all sports because it makes it individualistic instead of winning. And when you're playing open gym, no one's keeping any stats. So the only thing that matters is if you win or you lose. So that's all you that's all you need to think about is winning the game. What's the best shot for the team? And it's very hard for people of that age to understand that concept that it doesn't matter how many points you score. It doesn't. And they'll all shake their head and say, yeah, 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 coach, I get it. And then they'll go down and jack up a bad shot. But the only thing that matters is winning the game, especially in pickup, because you got guys waiting to you. If you lose, you have to sit out. No one's keeping stats. All the only thing that matters is winning the game. So you, who cares who scores? This is all I try to convey to these players. It doesn't matter who scores. All that matters is if we win or we lose. And so this is a very broad talk about time and score because this is a pickup game down 3-0. And, you know, you can get much more into detail about time and score, whereas, you know, you're up three with a minute and a half to go and you have a one-on-two break, you know. That's time and score, right? Win the game. Win the game. Pull the ball out. Run the clock. Set up your offense. Get a quality shot. Get to the free throw line and win the game. That we all know about. But there's time and score situations all throughout the game. You know, there's moments in the game where a team is ready to break. And so you might be up 10, and a team is ready to fold, and you can just, you can finish them off right now, and somebody takes a bad shot, and now this this team gets the rebound, and they're back in it because they go down and get a layup or something like that. And you go, that was a massive play with 10 minutes to go in the game, up 10. Because we could have buried them right here, and instead we didn't, and we let them off the hook. Same thing when you're down. You know, I see all of these games, and, you know, a team will get start playing bad, and a guy will take a bad shot, and the other team's going on a run, and then they'll come down, and, and then the next guy jacks up a shot, because everyone has great intentions. They want to be the person. They trust themselves. They want to be the person that helps the team stop this run. And I actually think that sometimes coaches let it go too far. Because then they'll jack up another bad shot, and another team will go down and get another layup, and then they'll call the timeout. Instead of after the first one, when you start to feel it slipping, stopping it right there. And you go, okay, well, sometimes you got to have the kids learn how to work through that. Yeah, but no, you know. You can say that, but are you willing to, to throw away a game so you can teach them a lesson about powering through? It's, I don't think that's worth it. So... There is multiple times throughout a game where the time and score and the situation can win or lose a game. I mean, even up 20. You can be up 20 and take a bad shot, and now all this, all of a sudden this team starts making a run back at you, and before you know it, it's 14 or 13, and then you call a timeout, and they believe again, and now you're back into a game. You're back in a game that was a blowout two minutes ago. So I think this time and score stuff and taking these quality shots is really important and man, it's important in, right now. It's important in the off season because you want to build these habits. And I think just even recording this, I need to be more assertive in in talking about this stuff because we're building bad habits right now. And those bad habits are only going to get worse if they're not reined in at this point. So that's something that I'm going to have to work on and something I'm going to have to talk to coach about as we move forward in this off season. So that's it for today. If you want to go to the YouTube channel, it's the help side. 
break down a lot of game videos and see what I see and see what you see and uh, have a conversation about what we see in these plays and how the team could have run them a little bit better or, or how great they ran them and how great the play was and, and stuff like that. So it's the help side on YouTube. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next time. Mm-hmm.